So, um, this morning before Kyra Jewel gives her her Dharma talk, we're going to have a couple of readings, things that are given all that we've talked about. I felt like I felt like this was a couple of things that are very pertinent to our time together. Um, and particularly some of the questions that came up in group one yesterday um, around this notion of of allowing what is and yet acting on and saying enough is enough, that whole balance. There was a question around that in our group. And um, I thought I'd read this, this short piece from A Monastery Within, a book by uh, Gil Fronsdell. Really lovely, lots of little stories. Tells from the Buddhist path. And um, I think this story may illustrate what I was trying to say in so many words. And it's called The Deer and the Tiger. It's very short. There was once a monk who was known for his relaxed and trusting nature. No matter what was happening, the monk would smile. If circumstances were challenging, he would say, if we can accept how things are and keep a positive attitude, everything we need will unfold on its own. Once, when the monk was on a month-long retreat in a hermitage deep in the forest, he witnessed a remarkable interaction between a deer and a tiger. The deer, injured, came stumbling into the clearing in front of the hermitage. Sometime later, a tiger wandered into the clearing and saw the wounded deer. The monk held his breath, convinced that the tiger would surely kill and eat the deer. The deer, too, was clearly worried. But as it could no longer, but as it could no longer walk, the deer accepted its fate, lying very still in the grass. To the monk's surprise, the tiger spent the next few days standing guard over the deer until the deer was well enough to wander off on its own. The monk was elated at this sight as it seemed to validate his idea that if we could only accept whatever happens fully enough, the boundless goodness of the universe will take care of us. A few days later, lightning struck a neighborhood, a neighboring hermitage only a hundred feet away. At first, the roof smoldered and smoked. The monk accepted this. The roof then caught on fire. The monk accepted this. Then the rest of the hut started burning. The monk accepted this too. Soon the entire hermitage was gone and the nun who lived there was slightly injured from attempting to battle the flames. When the abbess came to in investigate the fire, she asked the monk why he didn't go and help put out the fire. In reply, the monk told the story of the tiger and the deer and how it had taught him the importance of surrendering and accepting things in the way the deer had done. You fool, said the abbess. Certainly there are times when you should be like the deer. But if you are 
To be a spiritually mature person, you should also know when to be like the tiger. With that, the abbess sent the monk away. Don't come back until you know how to be a tiger. Only when you accept this part of yourself can you understand what it means to accept things how things are. Point made. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. When to be the deer and when to be the tiger. How to accept things as they are and and know when to act and not be foolish not to act. Yeah. That's kind of the I, when I saw that this morning, I thought, oh, this was appropriate for our conversation we had yesterday. So, <coughs> also in group one, which was a great group, by the way. Mm-hmm. Some group two. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying, just because I say group one is good does not mean group two wasn't. <laughs> group one was great. Um, Emily brought up the poem, Please Call Me By My True Name, by, by Master Titmanhan, and um, I was going to read it this morning. But I thought, and we thought, Emily, would you be willing to read it? Sure. You want to come up and read it? Which do you prefer, this or wood mic? That one, okay. Please call me by my true names. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second, I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. (coughs) I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda 
all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. that of the explanation. This poem was written in 1978 during the time of helping the boat people. And after the Vietnam War, many people wrote to us, this is from, from, from Thich Nhat Hanh, after the Vietnam War, many people wrote to us in Plum Village. We received hundreds of letters each week from the refugee camps in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand and the Philippines, hundreds each week. It was very painful to read them, but we had to be in contact. We tried our best to help, but the suffering was enormous, and sometimes we were discouraged. It is said that half the boat people fleeing Vietnam died in the ocean. Only half arrived at the shores of Southeast Asia. There are many young girls, boat people, who were raped by sea pirates. 
even though the United Nations and many countries tried to help the government of Thailand prevent that kind of piracy, sea pirates continued to inflict such suffering on the refugees. One day we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12 and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When we first learned of something like that, when you first learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take sides of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it is easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we can't do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same condition as he, I would now be the pirate. There's a great likelihood that I would become a pirate. I can't condemn myself so easily. In my meditation, I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day. And if we educators, social workers, politicians, and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years, a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we might become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and shoot the pirate, you shoot all of us, because all of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. After a long meditation, I wrote this poem. In it, there were three people, the 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? The title of the poem is Please Call Me By My True Names because I have so many names. When I hear one of these names, I have to say yes. Let's just sit for a moment.
please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once so I can see that my joy and pain are one please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open the door of compassion Thank you so much, dear Kanda and Emily. So beautiful. <clears throat> I've heard that poem so many times, but I heard it freshly today. The way you read it, it landed in a new way inside of me. And thank you. So today I'm going to um, continue on from Kanda's talk yesterday 
Um, looking at compassion and equanimity. Compassion, also a fierce compassion and equanimity. <clears throat> and I want to begin by offering a um, embodied practice that I have found really helpful and um, it's uh, a sequence that nurtures the vagal nerve. So it's this longest nerve from the brain and it touches um, all the major organs and it wanders through the torso um, down to the uh, pelvic area and um, this is the nerve that supports our um, rest and digest, the calming function, the parasympathetic nervous system. And um, when it's in a good tone, we can bounce back from stressful situations more easily. We, we have more of a buffer, more of a more balance. So, um, so we'll learn this together. And I was teaching a retreat um, uh, in September, and someone said that they had a friend whose uh, trans child couldn't sleep the night before starting middle school. This was in September, and that they had the mom had taught their child this sequence and they were able to um, release their worry, their anxiety enough to be able to sleep. So um, it's being being well used. (laughs) So we begin with the ears. So we'll massage the outer edge of the ear from the top all the way down to the earlobe. And we'll do that um, two more times. So just gently rolling the edges of your ears between your fingers from the top down to the earlobe. And this should feel good, just a gentle pressure. And the first place we find out if we're safe is through our ears. We listen to know that we're safe. Then if you have glasses, you can remove them. The next thing is to use this fleshy part of the palm to cover the bones of the eyes, so not pressing directly on the eyes. So you can let your head fall into your palms, if that feels good, and let your eyes close and bathe your eyes in a bit of healing darkness. We expend 80% of our attention goes out through our eyes. So we give ourselves this rest, letting the eyes rest. Good. 
And then we'll bring our palms to our cheeks and just cup our face in our hands. And you could, maybe there's someone who held your face in this way as a child, or someone who might do this now who loves you and cares about you. You can channel this energy to yourself. This friendliness, letting your head again rest in your palms. Comforting yourself, caring for yourself. Resting. And then we bring one palm to the heart and the heart center and the other hand on top. So this is not exactly the physical heart, which is a little to the left, but this is right in the center. So just feel the support of your palms over your heart center. You could take a few breaths, just feeling the expansion of the chest and the heart region. And say to yourself silently, I am safe. I am safe. Saying these words with our hands over our heart is scientifically researched to calm the amygdala, to calm the lizard brain that goes into fight, flight, freeze. Breathing, reassuring ourselves of our safety in this moment. And then we let our hands just slide down to an inch below the belly button. This hara, this dantian, this energy center in the abdomen. Again, feeling the support of the hands on the belly. Breathing deep into the belly. Offering ourselves this care, this attention, and this presence. And then we end the sequence with just turning our palms upward and resting them on our thighs. 
<clears throat> a bit like uh, Shavasana or corpse pose at the end of a yoga class. Just letting the body receive and notice what are the effects of these movements. Resting, receptive. Breathing, listening. And when I learned these, uh, this sequence, the encouragement was to do it three times in a row. So if you like it and wish to practice it, you might try doing, doing it three times in a row. But we'll complete this here. And <clears throat> just curious if you wish to share in a word or phrase anything you notice that that this sequence created for you in your body, in your mind. You can just speak, speak out from where you are. Felt supported. Thank you. Calm. Felt the warmth in my touch, felt present, attached, supportive of myself, present for myself, yeah. Thank you. Loved. Thank you. So this is something that maybe could even be the start of a meditation or the end of a meditation. Just a way to self-soothe whenever we need that. So, So we are in times of great uncertainty great disruption and times like these require an appropriate response and we're here training so that we can offer an appropriate response and we We are here because we care deeply about this world, about ourselves, our communities, our loved ones, the earth, the many beings on this earth. And we really care.
can only do this work truly if we are doing it for all beings. We are committed to protecting and serving all. And so there are two things that um, we could call ourselves bodhisattvas, beings that are on the path of awakening who want to help all beings awaken. We could call ourselves ecosattvas who are um, committed to protecting all beings um, and the planet um, and awakening ourselves and everyone on the way. But there are two things that we, as ecosattvas, sattva means a being. Eco, we know, means you know, life, the environment. Bodhisattva, being, sattva, bodhi is awakening, awakened. So there are two things that we need to cultivate to meet the challenges of this moment. Fierce compassion and equanimity. Fierce compassion means seeing the suffering of our times very clearly, not turning away from that suffering, being willing to take a stand, to act, to relieve that suffering however we can. You wouldn't be here if you didn't know that. Equanimity is the spaciousness, the perspective that helps our action come from a place of deep wisdom rather than reactivity. So equanimity is not indifference. It's not um, um, detachment in a you know, in an uncaring way. It cares very deeply. The word uh, equanimity, I'll just write it up on the board. We'll start with the, it's sometimes helpful to go back to the original words um, used by the Buddha. So the Sanskrit, the Pali. So karuna is compassion. And it is the, the willingness to really um, let our hearts be broken open by suffering to really connect with, to be there for suffering. But it doesn't mean uh, getting carried away by that suffering. There's an interesting, um, there's a text 
called the Abhidhamma, the study of, of Buddhist psychology, which really um, goes into detail to the mind states, these qualities of mind. Mm-hmm. And it talks about when we're really practicing karuna, compassion, there's actually joy there. There's actually a sense of well-being because we are caring about suffering. We're trying to alleviate suffering. And um, it's not actually characterized as um, where we get, where we drown in sadness. Yeah? I found that very interesting, that there's actually a joy when we can connect with someone else's uh, pain and do what we can to alleviate that. Um, I learned in research on um, on happiness, on positive psychology, that people report being more happy, more content when they are um, doing really difficult things like being compassionate and, and caring for someone as they're dying than they do doing their favorite activity if, if they're not mindful in that favorite activity. So people report feeling more fulfilled um, caring for someone who's uh, suffering a lot if they can really you know, be present and offer compassion then, uh, you know, whatever, going to see a movie, going to an amusement park, doing something um, that might be their favorite thing, but where their mind may be dispersed. So when our minds are very collected, when we're very present, it kind of doesn't matter what we're doing, but even if what we're doing is very hard, and you could say painful, that experience is deeply fulfilling. So that's, I connect that to this experience that real karuna, real compassion, it has this element of, of positivity, of feeling I'm doing, at least I'm doing something that can support someone else, right? Even though I'm in the face of maybe immense suffering, it's like I'm showing up to do what I need to be doing in this life. And that's more important than, you know, feeling good, feeling comfortable, Right? <clears throat> this has to do with our purpose. That's why that word, bodhisattva, ekosattva, that's about our purpose. That's about our bigger, whatever agreement we have for why we showed up in these bodies in this life. You know? And when we see that as our purpose, we have incredible energy. Even when the outcomes of what we're working on go up and down. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not successful in our work. That through line of being a bodhisattva, of being here to accomplish something, to fulfill our purpose, is always there. So the ups and downs, they don't drag us around as much. We can still find deep fulfillment and well-being and contentment in our work, even if we don't see much effects. Because we're doing what we need to be doing. What else would we want to be doing? Because now it's not effective, oh, we're going to give up and go do something 
not so hard or not what we're supposed to be doing, not, why, <clears throat> not what we're here to be doing, right? So karuna is compassion and equanimity is upeksha in um, Sanskrit, upekka in Pali. And I'm writing this up because it's helpful just to know the this first part, upa, is uh, over or all around. And the, the ka, the ksa, is to look. So it's this image of being up on a mountain and being able to see all around. Equanimity means you're not just seeing one side of the of the situation. So you have this vast perspective, being able to to see all sides. Yeah. Uh, not to be caught in one one view. Like this beautiful poem, right, we heard is that's a very a very broad view to be able to see ourselves in the pirate and in the 12-year-old girl. You have to get quite a bit of altitude <laughs> to be able to see that, that far. As Tai was talking about seeing into the future, seeing into the past, seeing how the present conditions came to be. Right? You have to zoom out to have Upeksha, to have equanimity. And there's some other helpful words that help us to understand um, the meaning of equanimity. Like uh, impartiality, non-discrimination, and and Thich Nhat Hanh offers a, a word, inclusiveness which uh, to me goes even farther. It's, it's a more active word than, um, than the kind of just letting be of, of impartiality, of non-discrimination, of... Um, so this sense of, of taking in all, everyone, every perspective. Um. So there's a way in which um, compassion and equanimity work together. And that's why we need them both. 
without equanimity, compassion can, um, well, it, it balances equanimity so that we don't lose our perspective, so that we don't burn out in our caring. And we do see this longer, bigger picture. And compassion balances out equanimity so that we don't get too cool, too, um, too far out <laughs> from the actual suffering, the burning, the burning house, right, <laughs> in the story. So we need, we need, I mean, really this story is so perfect because um, we need the equanimity of the deer that accepted its fate, and we need the fierce compassion of the tiger that protected it. We need both. They balance each other. And, and really, without fierce compassion, we won't have the strength to stand up to injustice. We won't be motivated to, to put ourselves on the line, to have this courage to speak out and say no. So, I'm going to uh, read you something that I read this morning um, that for me is about also Uh, bearing witness as the tiger and um, it's not something that I am sharing maybe easily or lightly. Um, And and in the spirit of please call me by my true names, I invite us to to see ourselves as this young person who is writing to us all, and to also see ourselves in everyone uh, involved who is causing the, the pain that this young person is talking about. <clears throat> And so I received this this morning. 
from Noor Khalil Abu Shamala, written on the 31st of October. My 24th birthday has just come and gone. Over the past 24 years, I have lived through five wars in my beloved Gaza. The experience of the previous four wars mean nothing in the face of the inhumanity we are now witnessing, not only from the Israeli occupation, but also from the world's governments. We have been categorized as subhuman creatures by the occupation. The world's supposed advocates of humanity heard what Israel said and have seen what it has done, yet no one has taken any action. They have seen thousands of our children killed and they have remained silent. They have seen our hospitals collapse due to lack of medicine and equipment, as well as threats of destruction and orders to evacuate patients. And they have remained silent. They have seen our homes being demolished, often with us inside them, and turning into rubble. And they have remained silent. Since the first day of Israel's latest war against Gaza, I have been trying to write something. I have wanted to document what we are going through, how we live under bombardment. Each time I have tried, I have failed to find the right words. How can I describe the destruction of my city and the neighborhood I live in? How can I describe the moment I evacuated my home, leaving behind all my memories, all those moments of laughter with my siblings? We left our homes because Israel forced us to choose between saving our lives and saving our homes. We could not stay within the walls that gave us a sense of safety. How can I describe the collapse of my beautiful homeland? How can I describe the way gentle breezes have, trans- have been transformed into the smoke of gunpowder and white phosphorus? How can I describe the smell of blood and death? We have been deprived of electricity and water, basic necessities that should be readily available. We have been subjected to an internet blackout. Communications firms and the networks on which they depend have been destroyed. Israel has isolated us from the world and from people within our homeland. It has stopped us from accessing news. We now face not only the threat of death from Israel's missiles, but also the struggle for survival. How can we survive without food, water, and electricity? We are enveloped by a strange sense of resignation and fear of the unknown. 
Should we worry about the present moment or think about the future? How will we be able to live in our destroyed city? What will happen to us? How will the days pass? Something inside me dies. We have sought refuge in my grandfather's house located in southern Gaza. Israel described the area as a safe zone. To get here, we had to leave behind all of our memories. It is anything but safe here. We have awoken to the sounds of a massive explosion nearby. There was a belt of fire beside us. Eight missiles were dropped on homes, dropped on the heads of their inhabitants. Fragments of the ex- from the explosions flew toward us as we lay on the ground. We had all rushed to a corner and fallen. We could not walk because of fear. We embraced each other and screamed as if it was the end, as if death had come. We could not escape amid the chaos. Yet we saw a glimmer of hope as my uncle and my cousin ran to rescue us. They were terrified of losing any of us. We have survived until now. The world is still watching. I am alive, living under bombardment, but something inside me dies every day. Something inside me dies with every missile fired at my country and my people. I feel like I am dying with fear, the constant fear of becoming homeless the constant fear that I will go back to our home and find nothing there. I feel like I am dying with the fear of losing someone. I'm not writing for sympathy or to make the world understand. Images from Gaza speak louder than words. The images are clear. No further details are needed. I'm writing only to remind myself of how the world abandoned us, how it oversaw our suffering and death. The spilling of our blood did not move the world to action. The day this war ends, we will return to life. It will be the date of our rebirth. From that day on, we will mourn for a long time for the rubble of our beautiful city, a city destroyed not just by Israel, but by the entire world. My message to the world is simple. I hope that the images of all our martyrs and our destroyed homes haunt your dreams as long as you live. I didn't want to read this. 
part of me didn't because it felt too much. But I also felt, I have to. I have an opportunity to talk about compassion and equanimity. And if we don't turn towards this suffering, This is the 12-year-old girl, 12 years later, who's turned 24 and can speak for herself, can speak for himself. And I really needed to hear that poem. Please call me by my true names. Because when I read this, it was hard for me to see myself in the Israelis and in the US government that's funding this war. But I am them too. No one is excluded from my heart. How do we do that, really? The, the protective tiger gives voice to the voiceless. <clears throat> the deer that accepts its fate. Helps us to see we're all implicated. And everyone in this conflict needs our compassion as well. Our, our understanding. How to look at the the pain in, in all people involved, because this doesn't come about without deep pain on all sides. It doesn't mean all sides are equally resourced. 
and, and an equal, you know, um, on an equal level. But everyone here is a human being and suffers and has come to be because of many causes and conditions. This wasn't the talk I prepared, so I'm a bit lost now. I'm trying to figure out what <laughs> how to move on from this. Um, What, what struck me so much from Kanda's talk yesterday was the, the wisdom that if we can shift our way of thinking, that's more powerful than any action we can take. Because think about this poem, Please Call Me By My True Names. This horrific event happens. Tai didn't go right away into action. Thich Nhat Hanh, we call him Thai, which means teacher in Vietnamese. He got that letter about this girl jumping off the boat to commit suicide, and he didn't start writing letters right away. He didn't start a protest right away. What did he do? What did he do? He meditated. He meditated first. Because he had to get his mind right. He had to be able to do both of these things. Karuna came easily. You hear about someone suffering like that. Karuna, everyone, right? We're going to feel compassion for that girl. But we need equanimity too. And he stopped. He slowed down. He said, you know what? Let me just pause and take stock and look deeply here. Look deeper than what's on the surface. And then he got an insight when he took that pause, he shifted his thinking to see the pirate needs my compassion as much as the girl. So it's this, it's this taking this moment to go deeper, to take in the suffering, yes, we don't want to turn away from that in any way. And yet, there's still more work to do than just feeling compassion. We also need to to see with wisdom, to look deeper. So there's, um, in many temples in Asia, there are statues of the Bodhisattva of great compassion and she has thousands of arms, she, he, or they. Sometimes it's masculine, sometimes feminine, sometimes it's trans. 
There's many different ways to embody compassion, great compassion. This Avalokiteshvara means, that word means, the one who listens to the cries of the world, the one who listens deeply. And so in all these multiple thousands of hands are different tools because for, to be compassionate, you have to be able to respond in many different ways. So there's, you know, uh, a bell, there's a drum, there's, you know, a paintbrush, there's a hammer, there's you know, all sorts of things. But the other thing that's there in every hand is an eye. An eye is is depicted on the palm of each of the hands of Avalokiteshvara. And that's because you can't act in, and truly have a, an effect of relieving suffering if there's not wisdom in your action. You have to be able to see clearly the situation in order to really have an effect on what's happening. And that's what Tai was doing. He said, I can jump into action right away when I hear about this girl, but I need to develop that eye of wisdom in the hand that's going to reach out. I need to stop enough to be able to catch up with myself, right? To let all the disturbed parts of myself the, the, the mud can settle so the water is clear. And then we know what to do. Then we know how to act. Right? I remember I was, um, I was a nun in the Plum Village community when 9-11 happened. We were traveling up the coast of, of, um, of California from our monastery in Southern California, Deer Park, we were going up to Northern California. Ty was scheduled to give a public talk in Berkeley. And on the bus ride up, we we had Walkmans in those days, and we heard about what happened. And we were so shocked, so disturbed, we just couldn't believe. And all of us who had roots in the U.S., we started talking, we started planning, and we said, tomorrow we're going to go go to our Parallax Press house up in Berkeley. We're going to draft a press release. We're going to help Ty figure out how to respond to this horrible event. So we went to Ty that night when we arrived, and we said what we wanted to do, and he said no. He said no. Tomorrow we're going to the beach. And we were not expecting that. But we all went to the beach, and we took time to restore ourselves, to touch joy, to swim, to play, to eat a picnic lunch, to be nourished by the beauty. And then we did everything else we had said we were going to do. Then we wrote the press release. Ty gave the public talk, and many after, and did interviews for days for publications. How do we respond? How do we deal with this moment of crisis? But what he said and what our actions reflected came from that place 
of stopping came from accessing that eye in the palm of the hand. They didn't come from reactivity, from fear, from anxiety. So yes, we take action. Yes, we need to respond with all of our compassion. And we need to bring this strength of equanimity, this ability to hold the moment with, without being taken down by the moment. That was such a lesson for me, that way that Thay responded. And we fasted. I remember we fasted for two weeks after 9-11 to pray for peace. You know, so we took action, but first we also took care of ourselves. And this comes from deep wisdom. Thay was part of the peace movement for decades before this. So he was trying to end the war in Vietnam. He was training thousands of young people in the School of Youth for Social Service. And they were running under the bombs. They were supporting people like this young man who we just heard. They were living that trying to call for peace. And even in the midst of that kind of crisis, constant, chronic crisis, that war went on for more than a decade. They took one day every week as a day of mindfulness. All the young people, all the people he was practicing with, he was doing humanitarian work with, they took one day a week to do what we're doing here on this retreat, to meditate, to breathe, to eat mindfully, to walk mindfully, to care for their bodies, to care for their relationships, to nourish joy, to read poetry, to sing songs, to let in the beauty of the dawn and the rustle of the leaves. It's like Kanda said yesterday, we do have this either-or thinking. It seems impossible in a time of crisis that we could stop and take in beauty. That would be like betraying the cause, right? That would be like, we don't care enough if we're, if we're actually enjoying a moment in the midst of relieving great suffering. But those things can coexist. We can care for ourselves and we can care for others. And they actually very much need to go together. We cannot care for others if we don't care for ourselves. I remember another story Tai shared. They, they risked their lives all the time to bring food and medical supplies to villages that had been bombed. So they were, you know, taking boats up the rivers to f- villages that were very remote And there had been a terrible massacre in this one area. And Tai was there trying to deliver aid with all of his colleagues. And it was like just a a horror scene. And he talks about being on a battleground. 
and noticing a flower, noticing a beautiful flower. Can you imagine? But I bet you that flower was essential to him being able to do what he did. Noticing that was what kept him able to to go on. So where are the flowers for each of us in this increasingly devastated environment that we may be working in? Don't forget the flowers. Don't let what you're seeing that's so painful keep you from seeing the flowers. So, I talked about this importance of pausing, right? Caring for this moment. And I was reading about Pauline Gum's book, Undrowned. This is a black queer feminist who has written a, a book about what we can learn from whales in our time. So it's Undrowned is a book-length meditation for social movements and our whole species based on the subversive and transformative guidance of marine mammals. Our aquatic cousins are queer, fierce, protective of each other, complex, shaped by conflict, and struggling to survive the extractive and militarized conditions our species has imposed on the ocean. So that's a little bit about the book. And she says, what I hope most people take away from the book is the fact that if mammals can live gracefully in the ocean, we can live differently than we do right now. We can do so many things that feel impossible in this moment. And sometimes what feels the most impossible is loving ourselves and each other with the depth we deserve. And she also speaks to this need to slow down so that our action can come from equanimity and compassion. She says, where do you think you're going so fast? Marine mammals offer slowing down as a strategic intervention in a world on speed and an appropriate response to the exact urgencies that made us feel we cannot slow down. It is the speed, the speed boats, the momentum of capitalism, the expediency of pollution that threatens the ocean, our marine mammal mentors, and our own lives. What if we could release ourselves from an internalized time clock and remember that slow is efficient, slow is effective, slow is beautiful? Slow allows us to gather ourselves so we can see 
more deeply so we can see outside of this black and white binary. So we can feel into more nuanced territory, into the please call me by my true names. And so, this takes practice, right? This new way of seeing, this new way of thinking. It takes time to cultivate, and we need to cultivate it in community. This trusting also that what we're doing, it's important no matter what the outcome is. Right? That's part of the slowness, is appreciating what we're doing in the long haul. So if we want to survive with our hope, with our love, with our enthusiasm intact, We have to look with this eye in our hand. This eye sees that no action goes unrecorded in the larger larger scheme, the larger play of life. That an action done out of pure intent to bring joy or to relieve suffering, it is never lost even if the immediate outcome is not what we want, and maybe even the opposite. That I in our hand of our action is the I that sees that all we can do is what we deeply feel and know needs to be done. (coughs) The only way we can be truly free and deeply powerful in that action is if we do it because we know it's what needs to be done. It's the right thing to do, regardless of what happens. And that's the power of equanimity that can balance this drive of fierce compassion. So I want to finish now just speaking about how we cannot burn out in our work. So I used to teach every year at an ecological postgraduate college in the UK called Schumacher College. And I used to teach with a friend named Sophie Banks, who was part of the Transition Town movement, um, this um, movement that started in Totnes, England. It was a movement to help towns and neighborhoods become fossil fuel free in terms of energy, housing, and food. And it's spread to thousands of towns and neighborhoods all over the world. There are thousands of transition towns. 
And in the beginning, um, they were meeting to start this. And she said, they focused on everything they didn't want. And they lost all of their energy. They fell into despair. When they focused on all the things that were wrong, they said they, they didn't have much to work on, not much to work with, not much motivation. But then, when they focused on what they wanted, what they really wanted to manifest, then they had plenty of energy and enthusiasm. And things shifted. So they were asking themselves, what is it that we want to bring into the world? And one of the things that she was responsible for was the self-care in the movement. Because she asked people six months in, she said, raise your hand if you're sustainable at the level you're working at for six more months. And nobody raised their hand. And so she said, we have to rethink how we're doing this because none of us will be here in six months if we keep going at the rate we're going. And so they hired someone. They found money to hire an administrative person and they took care of themselves. And one of the things she started doing was having different kinds of meetings. There were meetings to figure out logistics and work, but then there would be meetings to work on, how are you doing? How is our relationship? So there was the uh, doing meetings and being meetings. And they were just as important. The meetings to say, hey, our relationships matter. There are tensions growing between us. Let's take care of them so we can really do this work. That's the eye in the hand. That's the pausing. That's the taking a bigger look than just, I need to address this issue. This needs to get done. Let's do it. Wait a minute. What what are all the different things that can help this happen? Can we take care of all of those too? It doesn't mean we're not going in the direction of our goal, but we're actually being more effective when we bring more of our wisdom online and we take care of ourselves. She says, Sophie Banks, the most successful groups are ones that spend about 25% of their time on their group process. 25% of their time. So, A.J. Musty, the very beloved peace activist, says, there's no way to peace. Peace is the way. That is an example of peace being the way. Caring for our relationships. Caring for how we're doing our activism work. How we're living our daily lives. Not just what we do, but how we do it. Are we, are we sustainable? Are our organizations sustainable? So every time to, we come together, we can nourish ourselves. We can check in. We can have a bell or a few moments of breathing in silence or grounding in the body or resting or you know, bringing in this element of being, not just doing. So I want to share with you um, 
Mushim Ikeda is a beautiful teacher in Oakland um, at East Bay Meditation Center and, and other places. And she created um, a great vow for mindful activists. She's an activist and she works with activists. And it says, Aware of suffering and injustice, I, blank, and you write in your name, am working to create a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. I promise for the benefit of all to practice self-care, mindfulness, healing, and joy. I vow not to burn out. (laughs) That's the vow. And then she says you should sign it and date it. So if you're willing... I make copies of her vow (laughs) for each of us. And maybe we could do that as part of our time here, is see if this speaks to us. You can also rewrite it. You don't have to use her words if you want to change it up. But actually, think of this as a vow that we could take here together. That each of us is so precious, each of us is so needed for the long haul? What would it mean to value ourselves so much that we make the vow, I am not going to let myself burn out. I am going to take good care of myself. I care about this planet. I care about this world. I care about the, the people and the beings. And that's why I'm going to take such good care of myself that I don't burn out. And so this is what she says about this, this, you know, she wrote this vow after a dearly beloved colleague of hers who was a scholar-artivist, scholar, artist, activist. He, he died at 66 from a heart attack because he wasn't, you know, maybe didn't have the support, didn't have the conditions to really take care of himself. And so this inspired her to say, hey, we have to do this differently. So she writes, Burnout and self-sacrifice, the paradigm of the lone hero who takes nothing for herself and gives everything to others, injure all of us who are trying to bring the Dharma into everyday lay life through communities of transformative well-being, where the exchange of self for other is re-envisioned as the care of self in service to the community, the care of self in service to the community. The longer we live, the healthier we are, the happier we feel, the more we can gain the experience and wisdom needed to contribute toward a collective reimagining of relationships, education, work, and play. So we need you all, we need all of us to stick around for the long haul. We need you, each of you, for the long haul. You will have so much to offer the more sustainable you become in your work. For generations that come after. This is Angela Davis, our beloved elder. I think our notions of what counts as radical have changed over time. 
self-care and healing and attention to the body and the spiritual dimension, all of this is now a part of radical social justice struggles. This wasn't the case before. And I think that now we're thinking deeply about the connection between interior life and what happens in the social world. Even those who are fighting against state violence often incorporate impulses that are based on state violence in their relations with other people. If we don't heal these parts of ourselves, we do just reenact them within our movements. So, So this... This learning to be sustainable, challenging each other even in our movements to be sustainable. You know, in Plum Village, when I was a nun, we had every week a lazy day. Monday was our lazy day. And all we had was meals, no other activities. And you know that tendency when you have time you make a list of all the things you want to do for yourself. You know, oh, I'm going to write a letter to my family. I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Pretty soon it's not lazy anymore because you <laughs> scheduled yourself, even when the outer schedule isn't there. So Tai would really say, leave the day open. Don't plan what you're going to do. Don't fill up the space. And he even would say, ask each other when you meet each other around the monastery, say, Are you being lazy enough? He said we should ask each other, are you being lazy enough? Maybe we need to do that with each other in our activist movements. Are you caring for yourself? Are you resting enough? Are you you walking that path that you vowed not to burn out? Are you doing that? So we support each other, so we encourage each other. Right? So I'm going to end here and deeply thank you for your listening, for your attention. And I think we have some time now if uh, if folks want to Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.